incomprehensible privileges and responsibilities. So this morning we're going to look at the whole book of Ephesians. As we do, three important truths emerge that we have to hold on to. Three important gospel truths emerge from the book of Ephesians that we have to hold on to. We have to actually hold on to, but I think relish. The first is that the gospel reveals the incomprehensible grace of God. The incomprehensible grace of God. Probably, if you've memorized a verse from the book of Ephesians, it's probably Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Uh, that's one of the key theme verses in the book of Ephesians. Paul, throughout this letter, is going to highlight the grace of God that is revealed in the gospel. He highlights the undeserved nature and the bounty of God's grace. Right at the outset, in verse 4 of this letter, Paul begins to highlight the undeserved nature of his grace. He says, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world was even laid. Before we could do anything to merit it, before we could love him, before we could do anything at all, before we were even in being, we were chosen. And he continues and said, we were predestined to be adopted to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his grace. We were predestined according to his purpose, not the good he would see in us, not the, the worthiness that he would see in us, not how we would respond to him. He chose us for his purpose. And as we are chosen, and as we are predestined for adoption, we receive, he says, the forgiveness of our sins and redemption. That's what we bring to this equation. Sin and trespass that needs to be forgiven. God's grace is undeserved. Paul says in chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses. We followed the course of this world and the prince of this world. We lived according to the desires of our flesh and the passions of our bodies. He's highlighting that this grace that comes to us in the gospel is completely undeserved, but it's bountiful. It's abounding. Paul's overwhelmed by the immeasurable grace of God. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, we were sorting through old family videos, and we came across a video from Christmas. Uh, it was about six years ago, seven years ago. And our kids were obviously, younger, and uh, just enjoyed watching them unwrap a present, kill, was unwrapping a present, and it was a little kid video camera. You know, you take videos of his brothers doing things, and I don't know what he wanted it for, but it was a gift that he really wanted that Christmas. And as he opens it up, he, he's jumping around and going crazy, and he says the word awesome, 
like 25 times. It's awesome, it's awesome. When you read the book of Ephesians, you need to visualize Paul jumping around and saying, this is awesome. Now, Paul wasn't seven years old when he read it, so he has a larger vocabulary than that. But he uses all these phrases that appear nowhere else in the New Testament, just here in Ephesians. Because he's so overwhelmed by the grace of God. He refers to it as God's glorious grace. It's not boring grace, not mundane grace, it's glorious. He speaks of the riches of God's grace. That phrase appears twice in the entire Bible. Both times here in Ephesians. The riches of God's grace, which He lavishes on us. He doesn't dole it out in a miserly fashion. He lavishes it upon us. Again, the word that only appears here in the entire New Testament. We have a glorious inheritance. He speaks of the immeasurable greatness of God's power that is brought to bear for His people. He's not just merciful. He's rich in mercy. Immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness, he says. And here's my favorite. He doesn't just love us. He loves us with a great love. Nowhere else in the Bible do you see that phrase, but it's here in Ephesians. God loves you with a great love. He's so overwhelmed by this. He's praying for the church in chapter 3. He says, here's my prayer for you. That God will strengthen your innermost being with his power so that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Do you catch that? I want you to know the love of Christ. A love that surpasses knowledge. It's so beyond the scope of your ability to know and comprehend. You need God to strengthen your inner being so that you can comprehend. That's the greatness of God's love and grace and mercy. And it's by this grace, Paul says, that we are saved. You know, in other places of, of the Bible, the New Testament, we're told what we're saved from. Condemnation, wrath, hell. That's not Paul's focus in Ephesians. In Ephesians, Paul focuses on what we're saved for. We're saved for adoption, he says. Again, chapter 1, verse 4, you were chosen in Christ to be adopted. Other passages, Romans, for example, Galatians, speak about justification in this, this legal declaration that you're, you're now right with God, and that, that's Paul. Paul affirms that, but he kind of blows right past that into this more familial language. You have been adopted into God's family by His grace, by His love. And because you are His son, you now have an inheritance, this glorious inheritance. And God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that you will receive your full inheritance. Adoption, inheritance, that's what we're saved for. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, you know what, I, I need a summary word. What? Every spiritual blessing.
That's what you're saved for. Every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. This first section, chapters 1 and 2 and actually 3, are, are the doctrinal sections of this book. And we tend to think of doctrine as this really heady stuff, right? And we're a, a heady bunch. We like to parse everything out. But Paul is not writing this doctrinal section just to impact your heads. He wants it to move to the heart, too. So even when he says, I want you to know this, it's kind of like when I say to my kids, you know, right, how much I love you? I, I don't want them to give me kind of a Spock answer. I had fifth under Nimoy in somehow. Uh, you know, I don't want, don't want them to give me a logical answer. Yes, Dad, I know 97% of fathers love their children, so yes, you love me. It, it makes sense for your project. No, I, I want them to feel my love for them, my affection for them. And when you read the book of Ephesians, don't just think. Feel. Feel God's love and the warmth of His fatherly affection for you. He has loved you with a great love. And the response is praise, worship. Paul says, make songs to him in your heart. If you're telling that like me, you don't have to sing them out loud, but make them in your heart. Sing praises, sing worship, commend this grace to others. That's the first essential truth that comes out of this book. This letter. The immeasurable grace of God is revealed in the gospel. If the privileges are as great as Paul has made them out to be, and they're all undeserved, Paul makes that so clear. Well, that doesn't mean that there aren't responsibilities. Paul also highlights the responsibilities of the gospel. The gospel, this is the second essential truth. The gospel frees us to live a new life of holiness and good works. Again, the first half of, of this letter is, is theology and it's doctrine. It's what we should believe. And the second half, typical of Paul's letters, is ethical. It's how we ought to behave. But even in the, the first half of Ephesians, you get this idea, this anticipation that the theology of grace it has to spill over into life. So yes, we are called. Yes, we are predestined. But we're called to holiness and righteousness. One of the things that Paul constantly does in this letter is he contrasts the old life that you used to live and this new life that you're now called to live. He says, live a life worthy of the calling that has been placed upon you. The new self is unlike the old self. The old self was given into passions, given over to darkness and futility of thinking. But now, in Christ, you are a new creation. You have newness of life. You're created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. He says, 
Even though he's writing to a group of Gentiles, he says, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Though ethnically you're still a Gentile, give up those ways. Because now you're part of the people of God. And you're to live differently. Not living a life of evil deeds. But now you're called to walk as children of light. And do good works. If Ephesians 2.8 was the theme verse for point one, Ephesians 2.10 is the theme verse for point two. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for us to do. It's interesting that in a desire to protect the gracious nature of the gospel, in some circles, good works has almost become a bad word. If you don't want to emphasize good works because you might turn the gospel into something other than grace-based. But Paul wasn't afraid of that. He said, you're saved by grace, but now go and do good works. You were created for that purpose. And God's already prepared them in advance for you to do. So step into your purpose. Step into what God has planned and prepared for you to do. And do it. Do good works. What kind of works does Paul have in mind here? I, I really don't think he has in mind great deeds of piety. Reading the Bible more. Praying more. Living a monk-like, ascetic lifestyle. Now, I don't think that's what he has in mind. I think what he has in mind when he says, now do good works, it's works that are going to benefit other people. Martin Luther, the reformer, was fairly famous for, for railing against the kind of monk lifestyle. He says, you're, you're walled up in your monastery. You're doing all these quote-unquote good works, all these deeds of piety, spending hours and hours in meditation and prayer and fasting. But why? He said, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. Uh, your brother does. I think the works that we're called to do are those works that serve others. And the book of Ephesians plays this out. Or to do our good works in our vocations as husbands and wives. Do our good works, our expressions of love in our vocations as parents or children. Or employees and bosses. Or citizens of a nation. Residents of a neighborhood. That's the arena for our good works. We do them as an expression of love for our neighbor. We serve God by serving our neighbor. We love God by expressing our love for our neighbor. But Paul wasn't writing a night commercial. He's not just saying, you know, just do it. Just do this life of holiness. Just do these good works. He also tells you how. How do you go about doing this? How do you go about being this? Well, you put on the full armor of God. It's not just a matter of buckling down, working harder, 
trying your best. It's a matter of training, but training smart and putting on the, the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation and taking up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and being in constant prayer so that through these means of grace, God changes us, He transforms us, He makes us holy. He makes us loving so that these good deeds aren't just works we do, they're expressions of an inner change. They're expressions of a heart for God and for others. It's not just trying harder and better. Not just trying in your own strength. It's availing yourself of the strength that God provides. We're being created through the gospel of grace. We're being recreated to be new men, new women. And this is all in the context of a new humanity that Christ has created. God in Christ is reconstituting humanity in the church. And the third truth that you see in Paul's letter here is that the gospel binds us together in one new man. The book of Ephesians has what might be the highest doctrine of the church in any of Paul's letters. He speaks about the church as a body. He says we're, we're all members of one another. And the church is a holy temple. Christ is the cornerstone and we're being built up in Christ. And we're the dwelling place of God. And not just we as individuals, but we corporately, the church, are the dwelling place of God. And the household of God, the church, is the household of God. God our Father and we, brothers and sisters, together in the household. But Paul also says that God is creating one new man. One new man. Chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law of its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. When sin entered the world, it not only destroyed the vertical relationship between us and God, it did great damage to the horizontal relationships between men and women. Sin wreaked havoc, not just on our relationship with God, but on humanity. And you see that immediately after sin, God says this fundamental unit of humanity, the family, is going to be greatly, greatly disrupted now. And then the first generation after the fall, Cain kills Abel. And as the story progresses, you get to the Tower of Babel, 
where sin has utterly confused, utterly divided, wreaked havoc on humanity and unity. But God enters the picture, he's always there, but he enters it redeemingly to put back together what sin was destroying. And in Christ, that dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And there's now no Jew, no Greek, no Gentile, no barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, male, female. There's unity in the body of Christ. Paul emphasizes this truth that we are one so beautifully in chapter 4. In chapter 4, he highlights seven things, seven foundations for our unity. We have seven more points to go this week. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> seven foundations of our, our unity. There's one body. One body. That we might look in the telephone directory and see all these churches listed and see, oh, there's many bodies. No, there's, there's one body. We're all the body of Christ. And there's one spirit who indwells all and gives life to all the church. And there's one hope. There's one Lord, he says. And it's not Caesar. It's not Calvin or Luther or Wesley or N.T. Wright or John Piper or, frankly, it's not Paul or Peter. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ. And there's one faith. And one baptism that binds us all together. And one God and Father of us all. Seven affirmations, seven foundations of our unity. Showing that we are this one new man. We are this humanity that God is reconstituting in Christ. That unity is so needed. Consider our world for just a moment. How scarce, how precious is unity? Where can you find it? In our nation, no. Where can you find unity? The church. The church is supposed to be this place where we display the one new man that God is creating us to be. It's precious. It's a rare commodity. And we should find unity in the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So what about all the denominations? What about all the schisms throughout the history of the church? You know what? Those are important to think about. I'm much more concerned about how unity is displayed here, in this body, in this church. And in ECC, I see such beautiful displays of unity. It's just amazing. It's a unity that's not based on uniformity. We are so diverse. At times it's maddening, isn't it? But it's beautiful. Attend an ACG. Attend a small group and just dip your toe into the diversity. As those groups begin to engage topics like social justice or politics or baptism or the book of Revelation 
or the book of Hebrews, or name another book. All the diversity begins to emerge, and we have these wonderful, rich, sometimes heated discussions. And then we walk out, we step into worship, and we praise the one Lord, and we affirm the one faith. The center holds. We can debate and argue and have fun with all the things that are on the fridge, but the center holds and we celebrate the center. That's what defines us. Not a pet issue, not a pet doctrine. The center. Jesus Christ. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. I love how that comes to expression here in this place of unity and diversity. And I love how it's lived out in love for one another. I never been in a church that grieves as well when others are grieving. That rallies around those who are struggling because of a sick child or a health issue or a loss of a job. We grieve, we hurt, we celebrate. We do all these things together because we display, we live out this unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. But that's not saying there aren't challenges. And that's not to say that there aren't things that threaten that unity. Threaten to tempt us to give up the core and rally around secondary issues. Because those challenges are there, we need to hear the admonitions from the book of Ephesians too. Paul says, put away all talk that doesn't build up. Focus and only let what builds up come out of your mouth. He says, don't grieve the spirit with bitterness or slander. Not even slander that masquerades as concern or puts on the mask of a prayer request. Give up slander. It grieves the spirit. And maybe most importantly, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Being in a tight-knit body relational body is going to mean you will be offended. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say forgive. Right? Forgive as you have been forgiven. Freely, abundantly, undeservedly you have been forgiven. Extend that grace of forgiveness to others. And be eager, he says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I actually like the NIV translation even better. Make every effort. The word could be translated, make an intense effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Because it is a precious commodity, because it will be challenged, because it will be threatened, because it is so important to be a witness to the world. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. Three things the book of Ephesians tells us. The gospel reveals the incomprehensible grace of God. The gospel 
frees us to live new and whole lives, and the gospel binds us together. And all of this is true in Christ. That phrase, in Christ or in Him, shows up 30 times in this short letter. It is in Christ that we are chosen, in Christ that we are redeemed, in Christ we are saved, in Christ we are being built up into this new man, in Christ that this new life is being lived out. The gospel proclamation is that God, in Christ, is remedying sin in all its effects. He's overcoming alienation between God and man. He's overcoming sin's tyranny in our life and freeing us to live new and holy lives. And he's binding us together in the church, all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's Paul's word to us in the book of Ephesians. I pray that the Spirit would be working so that we would take it, treasure it, and live it. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for how your word comes alive, comes alive to us. How it gives us life. Father, we pray that through your word, your spirit would be working. That you would be building us up into the church. That you would have us to be a church that is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. A church that is a beacon to your world. A beacon of your grace and of your love. Your great and comprehensible love. Father, we pray that as we celebrate the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. You, you would use this meal that we celebrate this morning to bind this